You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured, episode 98. Today we hear about how teachers and their union in one of the most union-unfriendly states in the country are working to defend immigrant students from the detention and deportation campaign against Central American refugees. But first, the news. Well, the iconic camera retailer B&H is once again finding itself in an uncomfortable spotlight, this time with yet another discrimination lawsuit. Amid a monumental unionization drive led by the store's warehouse workers, the Federal Department of Labor has slapped the historically Orthodox-owned store with charges of blatant employment discrimination against Latino workers. The Latino workers, according to the suit, were subjected to verbal abuse, including racial taunts. They suffered discrimination in promotions and were paid less compared to their white co-workers. And perhaps most egregiously, they were forced to use unsanitary and often inoperable restrooms while whites reportedly got access to better facilities. Recently, the company allegedly fired seven members of the cleaning staff on the same day that the warehouse workers voted to unionize with the steel workers. And as if that were not flagrant enough, the company offered the Labor Department, that is the U.S. government, a payout of just $112,000 to make the problem go away quietly. They so-called, quote, take it or leave it good faith offer, according to the New York Times. Well, that didn't fly with the Department of Labor, and the company has remained hostile to the union, and they're meanwhile facing mounting criticism from the consumers that regularly see them as a fixture on the photography and art scene in New York City. The advocacy group behind the unionization drive, the Laundry Workers Center, says that pressure has been mounting as the campaign has escalated through social media and public rallies. And now with this lawsuit, um, they add yet another taint to their record. They have faced similar discrimination legal troubles in the past, um, charging them with discrimination against Latinos and women. Uh, the earlier dispute they managed to settle in 2012 by providing about $4.3 million to 149 employees to compensate them for unequal pay. Um, and uh, withheld promotions and denied benefits because they were Hispanic, according to the New York Times. The federal government, meanwhile, actually has a direct stake in this claim, so they can sue B&H directly because they actually have procurement contracts with federal agencies. They might lose those contracts now, of course, but the bigger issue is whether or not they will lose their role in the industry. Perhaps this latest legal dust-up will finally persuade B&H fans to drop the famous brand now that it's become synonymous with bigotry. Longtime belabored listeners will remember the story of the hot and crusty bakery in New York City and its workers' long struggle for a union. They eventually, with the support of the Laundry Workers Center, won an unprecedented victory that included a union hiring hall and were featured in a documentary called The Hand That Feeds. That was in 2012 when Occupy Wall Street protesters joined the picket lines and inequality dominated the headlines for the first time in decades. Well, Hot and Crusty has a new name, Broad Kitchen, but it is up to its old tricks again. 
The union's contract is in negotiations and the owners are cracking down. The chain allegedly changed owners in 2014 and was rebranded with a celebrity chef attached, but the union believes that the ownership is still the same group of investors and the practices sure look familiar. The workers have been fighting for weeks after management threatened to close the store and fired workers who have led the union drive from the beginning, including union president Mahoma Lopez. The company, meanwhile, has opened another non-union store, so much for its claims of being out of money from having to pay those poor unionized workers so much. And it hung posters in that non-union store denouncing the union, signed by supposedly all of its employees. But once again, New York City labor is rallying around the workers who have filed an unfair labor practices claim. And there have been continuing protests. And, well, these these workers kind of... Uh, rallied the city once, and it's not surprising to see it happening again. We harp on this a lot here, but it's worth remembering that winning a union election and even negotiating a first contract successfully doesn't protect workers from aggressive union busting. The story of Walmart workers who were fired over two years ago and just got their ruling from the NLRB should remind us that the courts and the labor board can be very slow to respond, and fired workers need to pay the bills now. So... It can seem a little ridiculous how far employers are willing to go to try to get rid of a union until we remember, as we always remind you around here, that this is ultimately all about power. The digital media outlet Gawker has just finalized its first ever union contract, making it one of the first digital media enterprises to get a full-fledged labor contract under the Writers Guild of America East. As you reported before, the digital media sector has been one of the rare bright spots in an otherwise dismal landscape for labor organizing in the so-called new economy. Through a combination of savvy public campaigning, engagement with a relatively union-friendly management at Gawker, and a general desire to help set a new standard in this relatively nubile labor terrain, Gawker's media empire voted to unionize last year with the support of the company's chief, Nick Denton. This also helped set in motion a flurry of organizing at outlets like Guardian US, Think Progress, and Gawker, along with Salon and Vice. The new contract contains several provisions that aim to preserve the autonomy of the staff and ensure some pretty impressive wage scales and benefits that might serve as a template for similar union contracts to come. The three-year contract covering 99 employees grants 3% across the board raises each year. Full-time staffers will start at a minimum salary of 50000 a year. Uh, senior writers and editors get a minimum of 70000 And deputy editors and editors-in-chief of some of Gawker's smaller websites will start at a base of $90,000 per year. That also includes a 401k retirement plan with a dollar-for-dollar match for the first 3% of pay, along with health benefits with a guaranteed locked-in rate. So pretty good on the bread-and-butter issues. More importantly, the contract sets some serious guideposts for editorial independence, which might help safeguard its staff from the kinds of journalistic and ethical squabbles that have ensnared it in the past. The contract ensures that, quote, decisions about what to post can be made only by editorial and decisions about taking anything down requires a majority vote of the CEO, the executive editor, and the general counsel. And unlike many outlets that frequently rely on freelancers to produce content, (coughs) Gawker will now require that night and weekend contractors have to be paid as much as, quote, union-represented employees after they've been working for at least one year. And all full-time contracts... 
aka permalancers, I like that phrase, have to be offered full-time jobs after a year unless the company decides to stop using them altogether. So that's that's a pretty important ultimatum for freelancers. There will be regular consultations on workplace diversity. And on the IP front, writers have permission to author books based on their work with Gawker. The staff did not seek a four-clause job security provision, which sets it apart from most union contracts. This actually gives the company more leeway than many other union shops to uh, fire workers because they're at-will workers, but the workers said that they actually prefer to remain at-will as long as they get a good severance package. So the contract is not obviously picture-perfect, the staffers say, but it's a pretty good start for a pretty new sector of workplace organizing. Uh, Sadly, um, an addendum to this is that we've already seen one premature death among this class of young new union shops in digital media. Al Jazeera America's digital team has folded recently. But while the profitability of these digital parent companies remains precarious, it seems like with Gawker's new contract, the momentum for labor organizing is definitely trending upward. I have a new story out at the Progressive magazine in both print and online as part of a two-part feature on the guest worker visa program and its problems. Peter Downs looked into the ongoing problems with low-wage workers brought in on the H-2B visa program, while I focused on the problems of the H-1B, or skilled guest worker program, and the way the language of the so-called skills gap, particularly in tech jobs, is used to justify importing lower-paid temporary workers from overseas. There's a lot of interesting stuff in this piece, from the stories of longtime IT workers who were laid off and replaced with temps, to the ins and outs of the body shops that bring over waves of workers and get most of the H-1B visas each year. Here's a clip from my interview with Daniel Costa, Director of Immigration Law and Policy Research at the Economic Policy Institute. There isn't a lot of uh, you know, informed opposition on this issue. It's you know, labor is doing the best they can. They're, they're just outnumbered and outgunned in terms of in terms of all the the money that's going into this from industry. Wages in you know these occupations has been like flat going back to like the you know Bill Clinton years. That's sort of the biggest sign that is there really a shortage. I mean, uh, of these workers. I mean that the signs aren't there. Number one and number two. Um, you know, there may be, I, you know, we can say definitively there's labor shortages in some places at some times all the time, but wages have been flat, and the fact that employers don't have to prove that there's a shortage is really what the problem is. If employers had to actually recruit U.S. workers and hire, and were required to say hire an equally or better qualified worker, and if they had to pay at least the average wage for the job, then the program would probably have some credibility. But when you don't have to do any of that, you don't have to prove that there's a shortage or prove that there aren't U.S. workers looking for these jobs and you can pay a super low wage, you know, it's no surprise that there's a lot of demand for for workers. It's like Paul Solomon at Rutgers, who who co-authored a paper for us, said that it's sort of like Black Friday. You know, if TVs, big screen TVs are are half off on Black Friday, everybody lines up for it, right? But if you don't get one, is there a shortage of TVs? No, there's just a shortage of TVs at the price you want to pay. You know, there aren't enough visas for companies who want to pay the 17th uh, wage percentile. It's really... Yeah, and this is where we get into, I guess, all of these these myths about skills and, and workers and Americans and what work Americans will and won't and can't and, and don't do. Right. There's, there's an easy way to fix the problem of finding out if there's workers available. You know, like, but, you know, be required to pay the right wage and, and be forced to 
look for them. I mean, you don't have to advertise these jobs at all. Uh, if I'm IBM, I don't have to advertise to Americans that I want to hire, a, you know, a, a, a programmer, whatever, in New York. I can just I can just go and get an A1B. Right. I mean, when you look at STEM degrees, I mean, there's there's a few people who graduate with with degrees every year. I think it's I think it's closer to half a million. And and we know that you know only like one out of every three people with a STEM degree is actually going into a STEM job. That was Daniel Costa of the Economic Policy Institute, and we will have a link to my story up at the Descent website, along with everything else you hear about today. In recent weeks, federal authorities have swept through communities across North Carolina and rounded up several young people. It's part of a new crackdown by the Obama administration's Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, authority on Central American migrants. The pretext is that these youth, aged 18 and 19, along with many other families across the country, um, had crossed the border recently to seek asylum in the U.S., which they have a every right to do. Their pleas for humanitarian relief were rejected for whatever reason, primarily, advocates say, because they lacked adequate legal counsel. And now the youth caught up in the uh, recent immigration sweep, who are also in the crosshairs of an ugly rising tide of anti-immigrant politics. They're now detained indefinitely at a privately run detention facility in Georgia, and their communities are terrified. One island of refuge in all this has been their schools and a dedicated community of educators with the Durham public school system. They've rallied around these young people, uh, they call them the NC6, to resist their deportation and to raise awareness in the wider community about the plight of migrant youth. I talked to two teachers and a community activist in the Durham area who are campaigning to stop the pending deportation of Wilden Acosta. He's a high school senior from Honduras. He's now detained in Georgia, but he was just a few weeks ago on track to graduate and pursue his studies in engineering. Uh, Teachers are pushing for his release, and they're pushing for help to let him claim humanitarian relief. Otherwise, his family says that if he returns to Honduras, he will face death at the hands of local gang members because his home community has been overrun by crime and violence. In the meantime, his teachers tried, in a moving gesture, to deliver Wilden's homework to him at the detention center. Following their very public action, which I learned later actually entailed some risk on the teacher's part, I talked to the Durham teachers, John Davis and Alice Dominguez, along with Alicia Benitez of the advocacy group Alerta Migratoria, about their work and what local advocates and teachers are doing to protect their kids. Here's John Davis. So what we're involved with as a teachers union is trying to, um, and the Durham Public School Board, which has become involved in the issue, is to kind of prepare for um, how are we going to respond to that situation, how how can we serve students that may be living in fear of these kinds of conditions, and and that's a longer-term effort than these cases. We're not sure how many more there will be like this. You said there are six cases right now that you're dealing with? Yeah. Are you saying those six were just ones that were taken in recent um, sweeps? Yeah, they were all, they're sort of connected through time. It's, it's not like those are the only detained kids in North Carolina. It just was something that happened around the same time. 
what was the time that this happened? Because I know that there was a recent sort of flurry of detention activity at the start of the year, but that seemed to be targeting the most recent wave of, of uh, Central American migrant people who had been seeking asylum and that they had not had their asylum claims go through. But it seems like with this student, at least, and perhaps the others, um, they've all been here for a while. Yes, and his family is here. The Durham Association of Educators had a dinner when his mother came and spoke to us, and people from Alerta Migratoria came, and uh, teachers from Riverside came, and um, he was taken from outside his family's house while they were watching out the window, and they were afraid to leave the house. He was on his way to school. Um, So that happened on the 28th of January. The other students, one was taken from Thomasville, North Carolina, one from Raleigh, one from Cary, North Carolina, one from Greenville, and one from Charlotte. And so they're, the kids, they haven't been deported yet, but they haven't been released either. Uh, so we feel that sort of raising publicity so far has sort of, we hope, had something to do with them not being deported yet, but we're not sure. You know, they could be deported at any time. These are children being detained. They're being detained alone? Or are they with their parents at this point? No, no, no. No, they're taken alone. Okay. So, but their parents, I assume, are also undocumented? I'm not, I don't know. Actually, I'm not sure. I know what Alerta told us at the most recent meeting we had um, was that um, if he were an adult, he would have been released by now. But the fact that his family stayed in the house, I know he has a younger sister, would sort of indicate to me that they may have been worried about being taken also for deportation. I know his mother's been um, instrumental in speaking to the school board and to the union around town about raising profile for his case, but she's been, um, she had to sign a letter with her employer that she wouldn't take any more days off to work on the case or she would be fired. So she's been sort of our most persuasive speaker in the effort, and I think there's concern about her being available because of her work schedule to continue publicizing the case. The Durham Public Schools Board, um, they issued a statement um, similar to the one that the LAUSD did about um, wanting Durham Public Schools to be a safe space and asking for the students to be released, and that was a step that uh, the teachers' union was involved in. And so as a third-grade teacher, how does this play out among your students? I think that the, I haven't seen the kind of attendance drops that I we that they've seen at Riverside. I know that um, just across the district, not just at my school, that I've heard about children as young as five having warrants out for their arrest in our district by by ICE, and um, parents being afraid to give addresses to the school when they register their children. I know that um, my students, last one year I had them do an activity where they wrote letters to the president, and a lot of them wrote letters about their anxieties about um, about immigration policy and deportation, but for a lot of them it's really more their parents. And I also have had students in, my, in our school who have been unable to sleep or broken down in tears in school about Trump's campaign and the comments that he's making and fears their families will be sent back to, you know, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, Mexico, those places. And um, just to clarify, I mean, these, uh, these, may be, uh, these, may, these children, I assume, they may have uh, legal status themselves, um, but perhaps someone in their family is undocumented. 
Most of the students I teach are born here. We do have students. I've I've known students that have come to the country uh, more recently. Um, I think that one thing that we're just identifying with the Durham Association of Educators that we think is really important is that there's a real fear of speaking um, about these issues in school communities. Um, I think that some people just don't know a lot about the context in which this is happening, but um, I think other people are afraid, you know, for job security if they speak out on these things. An issue we've been trying to address as a teacher's union is to ask our local school board to pass a free speech resolution. As you may know, in North Carolina, there's a lot of attacks on public schools going on, and one of them centers on uh, legislation that's been proposed to restrict teachers from speaking about political issues in schools. And so um, I think that some teachers in our school want to do something, but I think it's it's much it's a, it's a it's not a good climate for public education here, and a lot of people are really scared to speak out. So a lot of what we're trying to do with uh, NCAE and DAE is to try and um, provide some professional development educators to speak to those concerns in order for them to feel, and also for, to train people about, uh, you know, uh, what are the protocols I should be aware of around um, creating a safe space in a particular classroom for students to speak about these things. I run a um, Spanish language lunch program once a week in my classroom for e everyone from third grade from a Spanish-speaking family can come. And um, it's a space where they can sort of, we listen to books read aloud in Spanish and parents come and read aloud in Spanish. And I sort of intend it as a chance for them to, some of them will mention I feel embarrassed to speak Spanish in school, um, to feel their languages and culture sort of supported within the school. And there's a the space they can kind of connect to each other, but I haven't really, ESL classrooms are also places those teachers have a lot to say about these issues, and you know, there's ESL teachers in the district that we are starting to form partnerships with the DAE to sort of look at how the translation service office works and things about like the lack of bilingual um, counselors in the district to have training about how to help kids who have these kinds of things facing them. So uh, those are longer term projects beyond this case that we're going to be exploring next year as a, you know, setting up professional development. But I think there's a, there's a gag order kind of, it's, it's not something people feel generally comfortable talking about in schools. And that was John Davis talking about what the teachers union and individual teachers are doing to protect the children who have been threatened with deportation. And now we're going to talk to Alicia Benitez of Alerta Migratoria, a local advocacy group that has been campaigning to protect these children and their families. Do you know anything about the circumstances under which he was actually apprehended? Yeah, so Wilden, basically, it was like late January. He's coming out of his home um, to turn on the car um, because he's about to leave to school. He goes back inside to get his backpack, and he comes outside, and there's a vehicle that's unmarked, and then he has two men who come up to him, also, like, no identification, basically, that lets him know that these are ICE officials. He, uh, and that's when, like, they basically throw him to the ground handcuff him and meanwhile his family inside saw everything and they basically were helpless they couldn't do anything to necessarily stop his detention at that moment um it wasn't until like they had already cuffed him that they basically identified themselves as ice officials 
what about the role of the um, school community in this? Um, have they been helpful at all? I know that there's an action coming up today for um, delivering homework to uh, to then and um, uh, symbolic protests on the part of the teachers. So what, what's that been like? Um, teachers have been really, really supportive um, in these actions. The only difficulty that, I mean, we've really run into is that, I mean, because of the nature of their work, they're pretty scared oftentimes to speak uh, just because they're worried about any type of retaliation in the schools or losing their jobs just because this is a sensitive topic. And oftentimes they're told, like, they need to stay out of this altogether. Do you feel like the school district and the administrations are taking necessary precautions or they have the right policies? I mean, I know that there's generally a policy against inquiring about students' um, immigrant status, but, um, you know, for obviously a variety of reasons, there are many other barriers to schooling that they face and, um, you know, good reasons to be scared of even going to school for a lot of these kids. I don't think that we have strong enough policies um, in favor of these kids. So, like, I don't think that schools are really doing enough to protect them and ensure that families know that schools are a safe place for their children. Like, we've been in meetings and things like that, but I haven't really seen, other than the statement that the Durham Public Schools um, released, I haven't really seen any actions towards protecting these kids or informing the public that the school is a safe place. In your organizing work, how do families generally feel about sending their kids to school? Some of the parents who are, like, for example, new to the area and wanting to enroll their children in school, they need to give an address. Uh, and oftentimes, parents are so terrified. Like, one um, person who works in, in, in the school system talked about, like, a mother broke down crying because she was so scared to give, like, her information and then, um, have a knock at her door, basically. And so they don't know that that information necessarily is, for the most part, can't be given out. But there's all these legal things in there as to whether, like, they can obtain that information or not. Do you know of any uh, families that have taken their kids out of school or, um, you know, deliberately not enrolled them? I haven't personally met any families, um, but a lot of the teachers have said that, that they've seen a drastic drop in enrollment um, in terms of students showing up to school and that many of them have altogether been pulled out by their families. Do you know what Wilden was like as a student? Yeah, so Wilden, um, his dream is to basically become an engineer. He was working with Ivana Monte, who works in Durham Public Schools as well, as a mentor a lot of these youths, and he basically from the moment he got here, he was very, very into school, did his best, was excelling essentially, and he was ready to like sign up at um, Durham Technical Community College so that he could continue his education when all of this happened, and he was on track to graduate this June. His teachers have described him as exemplary. He has done everything possible to try and succeed while he's here, and I mean, this has been a really tragic thing for a lot of his community, for a lot of the students there who have seen what happened to him, for a lot of the teachers. And he recently asked for his um, homework because he doesn't know how long he'll be there. And he's determined to, like, be released so that he can graduate in June and continue his education. And he just got here, what, in 2014, right? Mm-hmm. So to do pretty well for himself, for someone who just kind of dropped into, into the public school system. 
Yeah, yeah. And so right now, I mean, if he doesn't end up getting being deported beyond just interrupting his education, he'll also be separated indefinitely from his parents, I assume. Mm -hmm. Um, How long had he been apart from his family while they were in the U.S.? I don't know exact years, but I know it's been several years by now that his parents have been in the United States. And the and the main reason they brought him here was because he was basically being threatened and being told, you know, if you do not join, then essentially he was facing death. That was like his only option. It was either death or join the gang. And that's when he might end up being deported back to. Right. And now we'll hear from Alice Dominguez. She talks again here about what she is doing as an educator in her classroom and the types of struggles that teachers deal with day to day when they're putting up with a very hostile anti-teacher political climate and also struggling to advocate for these marginalized and disenfranchised communities. It all sort of fits together um, as part of a broader struggle and hopefully what they're doing uh, to protect uh, these children from deportation now will have some resonance in the future as people start to recognize the vital role that teachers play in ensuring both humanitarian rights for immigrant youth and their families as well as ensuring uh, labor rights and free speech uh, in the wider community. So in terms of what I've been organizing um, with John, we're kind of the co-chairs of this new committee that's formed. We're we're setting out a lot of goals, some of which relates to the threat of deportation and some of which relates to some more comprehensive PD for teachers to support Latino students in a lot of areas, like recognizing the trauma that's involved with the threat of deportation, but also providing curriculum that affirms their ethnic identities and providing them with strategies to support dual language learning. We are also going to be advocating for more bilingual social workers. Um, It seems like we only have one bilingual social worker um, in our whole district. And we're also going to be advocating for the district to provide more concrete information to our administrators regarding the sanctuary status. So right now it's really unclear what to do, you know, if a student is at risk of something, for instance, uh, like a health concern or suicide, you know, the normal procedure is to report that to the social services network. And we want to find a way to do that without outing the um, citizenship status. And I attended a focus group meeting yesterday um, with a man who's running for school board who arranged to just speak with uh, the parents of students um, in the school district who are Latino. And they, a lot of parents shared um, just their difficulty in communicating with the school district. So a lot of parents are afraid to participate in school events because of, you know, the status of their family. Um, And a lot of parents are even getting hung up on by office staff. So we've got a lot of work to do. What are you observing in terms of just the latest wave of deportations or detentions rather and what you've been mm-hmm. observing among students and families? Um, I, I guess you're, you're a high school teacher, right? So. I'm a high school teacher, yeah. So um, and my high school is not the same high school that Wilden is still a student at. But my students' uh, attendance is inconsistent. I am seeing an increase in concern from the students. I, it's clear that there's a lot of weight on them right now um, from 
a few of my students. I have a student from El Salvador who is still very much in touch with her family and has had several family members this school year killed by gang members. And so um, obviously if the family member has been murdered, it's always very clear she comes to class um, in a very traumatized state. Um, and so I'm, I'm just not clear what kind of support she's getting to navigate through that trauma. And these are, and these are students who came with the most recent wave in 2014 or earlier? I'm not sure when she arrived to the country, but she has reported that her whole family has had to um, close down all of her social media accounts because they're receiving threats from gang members in El Salvador. So even though this, this kind of activity is happening really far away from North Carolina, students feel it in a very real way every day in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of anyone who either someone in their family has been uh, placed in proceedings or have had some kind of run-in with immigration authorities or they themselves have? Not that I know of. No students have disclosed that information if that has happened, and it's, it's something that I'm not allowed to ask. What kind of guidance would you actually want? I mean, other than um, helping students cope with trauma, I mean, just in terms of guidance Mm -hmm. as far as how to handle cases like that, like um, to what degree, you know, teachers can feel it's appropriate to intervene or maybe not to intervene, like what would be helpful in terms of a Mm school-wide policy? Any guidance that I've received on that, I've received in my past teaching positions in other states from the school district. Teachers at my school have not received any training at all. And so I think it would be worthwhile to know what signs of trauma to look for. Um, But I think ultimately, like, that comes down to the guidance counselors. And every guidance counselor in our district needs training to help students cope with that trauma so that they can be, you know, thriving academically while also managing and coping with this, this trauma. It seems like the school district has a policy of at least, you know, kind of a don't ask, don't tell sort of thing with um, students' status. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that firewall mm-hmm. to you clear enough? Is there any other clarity that you would need in order to feel safe reaching out to students? Or for students to feel safe reaching out um, to you? I think, you know, I think teachers can do a lot. I think preparing teachers to anticipate texts that can be triggering of trauma. Um, so I teach World Lit uh, in the spring. At the time that they're learning it in world history, we'll be doing a Holocaust unit. Um, and in the past, you know, reading literature about families, you know, students coming home from school and the families not being there is way too real for students who are, like, exposed to the constant threat of deportation. So just to, for a teacher to be able to anticipate how their content might trigger trauma is incredibly important. And then what to do when they notice that students are, you know, experiencing trauma as a result of something that a teacher said or a student said or something in the content of class. I think even more important, it's, it's important for teachers to educate themselves on ways that we can affirm students' identities. Um, so, like, the more that students are able to learn, you know, students at the high school level can learn about the geopolitical contributions to what's happening right now, um, can help them make sense of this more. So if, if they're constantly engaged in content that um, does not speak to them personally, it's, it's, um, it's not going to help as much as it would if they were able to write about themselves and read about themselves and learn about their histories.
Mm-hmm. Um, what about the legal consequences? Like, for instance, there, there was a like the action in which um, teachers delivered homework to the student. I mean, are, is there? Seems like some teachers were at least a little bit apprehensive about mm-hmm. coming out publicly. Do you feel like there should be more safe spaces? Yes, that's a huge, huge need. Teachers feel really uncertain about ways that they can support students. And they're, they're concerned that by sending homework to Wilden and Georgia, they were concerned that they could be in danger of losing their jobs. And a teacher should never be worried about losing their job when they're trying to support students, no matter where they are. If a student is homesick, we're, of course, sending work to them. I, there, there should be no difference. Is your effort to organize, is that through the union? Like, does the union offer any yes. kind of support? Yes. Um, because this is also new, the union is offering support through advocating for the school board's most recent resolution to condemn the deportations. So this teacher's union got involved when Alerta Minatoria wanted to speak. So that's actually our first opportunity to hear about it was Wilden's mom coming to a teacher's union meeting. Um, and that's what got so many teachers involved. Do you have any other actions planned or anything like that in terms of just um, um, developing, you know, some of them, either the political activity or the organizing activity that you're engaged in now? Um, I know that there's going to be another event for us to send his homework since his homework was refused by the prison. We have an upcoming meeting next Sunday where we're going to continue working on meeting those goals of comprehensive PD and advocating for bilingual social workers and more informed, more information provided to admin teachers. Mm-hmm. And what will happen, I mean, if, if uh, say, Wilden or any of the other students currently detained or deported, how do you expect that to affect maybe your, your classroom? And will you talk about it with your students? Uh, do you expect students to come to you asking about it or...? Um, I will I will absolutely talk about that with my students in teaching Worldlit. Right now we're looking at um, so much of Worldlit is looking at the process of colonization and imperialism and looking at global movement, um, and it's, that's going to be tying into this idea of global movement. So it's really important to talk about the push-pulls of immigration, um, and um, I will have to be sensitive about that, but it's something that students are wanting to talk about. So teachers have to make a choice. If, if students are engaging in current events in their community and they want to learn more, um, the classroom is a great space for that. Um, you know, obviously it's important for teachers uh, to be informed um, so that they are, you know, giving, um, it helping facilitate find accurate information. Um, but it's also important for teachers to be able to navigate those really difficult conversations. Um, and that's something that I, I feel like I've been adequately trained with um, and something that I've, I've dealt with a lot in past classrooms. Um, but I, I think it's, if teachers choose not to take up those topics, students are grappling with it anyway, and they're grappling it with it without the support of their classmates and their teacher. So I think it's incredibly important for teachers to know, sorry, for students to know that their teacher is an advocate for them and they care about, you know, the multiple ways that they engage with their community. Has there been any support from the national union? Like does the NEA national have any guidance? Yes. Yes. I've been really thankful for the NEA. Um, They have been elevating Wilden's story 
Um, so they did write a piece um, on him and how the teachers union has been supporting getting his work to him and has been advocating for the for ICE activity in and near schools to stop. So they've, they've been a uh, great help to our cause here in Durham. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I imagine that um, having a, a union back uh, teachers, if they're going to be intervening in some way, is always helpful when they're mm-hmm. deciding whether or not to take a risk. Right, right. And this is an, like a federal issue. So we need national support in any efforts that we ha- that we take locally. That was Durham, North Carolina, public school teacher Alice Dominguez. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. Now it is time for everyone's favorite segment. Arg! I wish I'd written that. We talked two episodes ago with teacher Joel Berger from Detroit about the situation faced by Detroit teachers who are laboring in crumbling public schools under the control of the same emergency manager who helped to poison Flint's water. This week, there's an excellent update on that situation in Detroit up at the In These Times, giving an inside look into the way the teachers' campaign came together and drove out Darnell Early, that the aforementioned emergency manager. Written by Mario Vasquez, the piece is titled Teachers Who Staged Sickouts Declare Victory Against Detroit School's Unelected Emergency Manager. Early wasn't the first and sadly won't be the last emergency manager. There's a transitional replacement coming in for him at DPS, who will supposedly be the last manager for the public schools. But more importantly, the emergency managers remain rampant across the state of Michigan, and Governor Rick Snyder, who vastly expanded that system, but it should be noted, didn't invent it, it does remain in power. The emergency managers are supposedly imposed to bring fiscal discipline, but instead, in the public school's case, have blown the dead hole for the school system even deeper, leaving teachers working and students learning in crumbling buildings filled with rats and black mold. For the teachers, for whom striking is technically illegal, it was time to take action, and so the rank and file of the union organized rolling sick-out protests, a particularly striking form of protest because the emergency manager system in Detroit and Flint and probably elsewhere in Michigan was literally making people sick. Meanwhile, the state is planning to, quote, restructure the Detroit school district, raising fears that something like New Orleans' all-charter school district could be coming. The teachers, running out of reasons to hold back, felt that they had nothing to lose and planned to continue to push. Under state control, there's still very little they can do to have an effect other than to resort to disruption. As one teacher told Vasquez, Having none of the usual forms of democracy, like having no school board meetings to go to where we can voice our opinions, this is what we have to do. Mass direct action. If you've been watching the election debates play out during this campaign season, you've probably glimpsed plenty of hand-wringing over the so-called black vote. And one of the conversations percolating beneath the surface on the left has been the concept of reparations. 
That's the systematic compensation paid to descendants of African peoples in the U.S. to help offset the historical wrongs and crimes against humanity entailed by and leading out from slavery. The idea has always been pretty polarizing, and certainly this isn't the first time that the country has grappled with the question, or at least tried to, uh, for decades, uh, the issue of material compensation for slavery has bedeviled even progressive circles, and it's generally divided the left between those who feel racial hierarchy should be tackled along with and in tandem with class conflict and those who believe reparations debates are simply a distraction from the real issue of mass redistribution of wealth across society uh, that should be undertaken without any sort of specialized racial targeting. So Brian Jones, who's been on our podcast before talking about his work as an educator, uh, takes on all sides of this debate in a recent piece for Jacobin called The Socialist Case for Reparations. It's specifically a response to some of the recent pieces that have run in Jacobin and elsewhere um, on reparations. Um, he's talking about Cedric Johnson, Ta-Nehisi Coates, and of course, presidential candidate Bernie Sanders. They all have differing views on reparations, some for and against, but um, he calls attention to the central question at hand here. Jones writes, the more important issue is how the left views the relationship between racist oppression and the exploitation of the working class. And he says, all three of those writers, Sanders, Coates, and Johnson, all get it wrong. Quote, socialists should favor reparations for black people as part of a broader movement to redistribute wealth and power to all people who are oppressed and exploited under capitalism. Um, That makes sense. Seems fairly easy to agree with. So why do we have so much trouble agreeing? Well, he argues that black Americans have been subjected to centuries of exploitation and theft in a way that is both specific and exceptional to uh, this racial group. And yet it does not divorce the plight of black people from the broader struggle for economic justice for all, nor does Jones try to elide or negate the comparable sufferings of other races and ethnicities, including, say, Chinese laborers who were imported to work on the railroads, indigenous people who suffered genocide. And he emphasizes that, quote, every great fortune was built with blood and white supremacy is essentially at the root of all of these takings. But Jones returns to the issue of reparations and the black community by positing that the real question is not race versus class, as it is often too simplistically framed. Rather, he says this is about understanding the ideology of race as a paradigm for inequality, um, understanding racism as kind of an adjunct to capitalism. And he writes, because racism is central to the operation of capitalism, anti-racism must be central to any movement that hopes to challenge it. And he notes that Coates is right when he says, quote, racism has systematically hampered even strong left movements trying to win reform in the U.S. And therefore, he argues, the specific legacy of racism must be tackled head on. 
And uh, that's actually necessary to uh, building the agenda that Bernie Sanders is proposing, um, which is interesting, of course, because uh, Sanders himself has rejected the idea of reparations or reparations as he conceives of them. So on the one hand, Jones is recycling the classic argument for anti-racism and socialism, which is, of course, the both-and argument. And he argues that race and class are two sides of the same coin of exploitation, but he complicates it with this theoretical backbone. He writes, um, you know, as Marx argued, all profit is theft. Reparations, therefore, must be targeted at the class of people who benefit from this theft. And so we can see that reparations has this sort of clear arithmetical and ethical logic to it. Um, and so that aspect of it um, is, you know, perfectly easy to accept. But I think the reason we have such difficulty talking about inequality in the context of reparations and, for that matter, in the context of material distribution of wealth um, is because it really implicates us all when the question is about racial inequality, too. And he notes, a serious debate over reparations would raise the dangerous questions about where wealth comes from and about who is owed what in this country. So that, to me, is the actual moral power of the reparations debate, and that's precisely what irks all these advocates on the left who dislike this debate, and they have this constant retort that everything boils down to class. I think what irks people on the so-called other side, those who demand reparations, is that they genuinely believe that to show material inequality, you know, is an important point, but that also runs the danger of eliding the entire question of race, because just because race is a social construct, that is an abstraction, does not mean it shouldn't be assessed as a powerful ideology and as a powerful way of structuring the social order and structuring power. And as such, it must be interrogated on its own terms. So Jones ends on a somewhat sobering note that Sanders cannot, of course, possibly offer the real socialist solution solely through his electoral platform. I think we all knew that deep down. And to be fair, Sanders himself acknowledges that he's not doing anything more than just significantly move the needle towards socialism and towards that uh, revolution that ultimately must come from the ground up, not from the ballot box. But as we see with the discussion around reparations, sometimes that needle, even if it's only symbolic, even if it's only really a proxy for more pernicious social evils, the needle is just the thing. By categorically avoiding it because it makes us feel uncomfortable to confront racism head-on, then this abstraction, which we can all agree is meaningless, goes from something that is pointless and harmful to something that is genuinely vicious. This question won't be settled, again, at the ballot box, but that's not really what the reparations debate is supposed to be. It was never really about just getting to equality, Rather, it's about coming to a consensus on how we get there together. And that's all for this episode of Belabored. If you want to reach us by email, just contact us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you have something to say on the question of reparations, if you have something to say about the elections, find us on Twitter at hashtag belabored. Over and out. This life is hard, so hard I must go. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. 
join us online using hashtag belaboured.